All right, welcome back to Money Matters. This is our second session, and we are talking about bankruptcy, um, which is a very intriguing topic within um, Jewish thought. And the reason is because Judaism has, as we'll see today, a very different take on bankruptcy than, um, than uh, you know, U.S. law and, and, and uh, what we would call, I guess, Western values or secular values. Um, but first, I will share with you a joke. That's how we always get started. The joke goes that the CEO of a business, of a startup, comes to the rabbi once one day and he says to the rabbi, Rabbi, my business is tanking. It was doing great. We had great promise, and at this point, the business is going down. What should I do? And the rabbi says, look, I'm not a business expert. I don't know, you know, I'm not, I can't give you business advice. I'm a rabbi, I can give you Torah advice, but here's what I do. Whenever I encounter a question, you know, that I, can, I don't have the answer to, I always open up the Torah. I always open up, I go to the, off the shelf, pull out a chumash, the Torah, and I read it, and, um, you know, I open, I open up randomly to a page, and whatever that page says usually has advice for me. He says, thank you, Rabbi, I'll try that, and he leaves. Well, goes six months go by, and one day the rabbi's walking down the street, and this guy pulls up in a Lamborghini, right, and he honks the horn, Rabbi, Rabbi looks, it's that guy. He says, hey, you know, hey, Joe, how's it going? Joe says, it's going great, I'm making hand over fist, the, the business is going great, everything turned around, and it's all because of you. Or, sorry, he says, my fortune has turned around and it's all because of you. Rabbi says, what happened when you, you got home? He says, yeah, I got home. I opened up the chumash. And I, the first, I opened up the chumash randomly. And what did I see there? It's chapter 11. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, all right. So that's the joke. But bankruptcy is, of course, no laughing matter. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, th- it's a serious thing. And um, I looked up, I, earlier today, I looked up the latest uh, um, numbers. Um, in America, I think Americans, you know, this is personal debt. Americans are in debt, I think, to the tune of like $15 billion or something, or maybe more. Is it trillion? America Tri- or Americans? No, Americans. Oh, Americans. Maybe. It's a lot of money. The average house, well, if you divide it by households, um, the average is over $100,000 of debt per household. I guess that probably includes mortgages and everything, but whatever. But but anyway, the point is that debt is a it's a thing, and in our country, we have a mechanism for getting out of debt, and uh, and and we will uh, we will talk about that today as far as the Jewish take on all of this. Um, but first, 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 what I do want to talk about is the history of. Um, of debt default, because this is not by any means a new phenomenon. Since time immemorial, people have borrowed and have not been able to pay back for any number of reasons. In ancient times, how did they deal with the problem? Well, let's go through some of the historical possibilities. In ancient Rome, for example, the law permitted cutting a defaulting debtor to pieces, like dismembering them. Yeah. If you couldn't pay back a debt, it was actually allowed in the law in, in, in Roman times, in, 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 in ancient Rome. It seems hard to get your money back after that. It would. It would. Yes. Correct. That is more of a deterrent <laughs> than, a, than a tool to get back the, um, the money. By the way, the argument today would be also, you take a guy like Madoff, throw him in prison. How does that help anybody? Right? That's not... He's not, if he's a guy that could generate funds conceptually, I don't know who's going to trust him, but conceptually, that ain't going to help. But 
to the, but let's just go, so we have in ancient Rome, so they're, they're physically killing people because they can't pay back. In, um, in, in other times, as history kind of evolves, they, uh, they would throw, they, they would sell the, 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 the debtor or the debtor's children into what we would call debtor's prisons, um, where they would languish and uh, until, you know, or, or sorry, not, not debtors, but they would sell them as slaves and then profit from that money and to pay back their to pay back their debt. They would literally sell human trafficking to then recoup whatever money they could. Text one, we're gonna start right away with text one. Text one is from the Jewish books of prophets, the book of Kings, and here we have a Jewish story about a about a um, uh, a, a, a threat of slavery for an unpaid debt. So I'll give you the context of text one. There was a prophet named Ovadja. It's his Hebrew name, Ovadja. In English, I think it's pronounced Obadiah. I think that's the English way of pronouncing it. He was a guy who was, this, this prophet, Jewish prophet, railed against um, idolatry, which makes sense, right? As a Jewish prophet, you would think one of the major tenets of Judaism is not to serve idols. However, there was a time in Israel, there was a Jewish king whose name was Achav, or in English, Ahab. His wife was Ezebel, in English, Jezebel. She was ruthless. She was a, an idolatrous. She loved idolatry. She got her husband into idolatry. They were both huge fans of the idols. Um, you think American Idol was huge. Israeli Idol was huge back then. It was all the rage. And in fact, all of the prophets that, 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 that warned against serving idols, they had a campaign. Ezebel specifically, the queen, Jezebel, sought to literally murder all of the prophets. So there was one of them, there were many Jewish prophets then. Um, there, so there was one of the prophets, his name was Ovadja, Obadiah, who took it upon himself to hide these other prophets in caves. So he basically sheltered them from, from execution, from, 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 from death. Um, and, and in that context, he also prov provided food and other necessities. He, he basically uh, borrowed money to support all this. So when he died, his creditors came after his widow. So again, Obadiah passes away. He's been bankrolling this whole operation to rescue the, rescue the other prophets. He dies. So now the, the lenders come after Obadiah's wife to say, hey, give us back this money that your husband borrowed, who's no longer with us, or else we're going to sell your children as slaves. That was the threat. To the point that there's a whole story here that we're just going to do a quick excerpt. She comes over to the prophet Elisha. Again, there's so many prophets here, right? So um, Obadiah's widow goes over to another prophet, Elisha. Elisha was the, the protege. Protege was the student, was the next prophet after Elijah. Elijah, the guy who comes around the Seder, yeah. right? So, so he, it was Elijah and then Elisha. And so she comes, the widow of her goes to Elisha and says, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't have any money. My husband left all these debts. They're coming after my kids. So he tells her, um, what do you have in the house? She says, all I have is some oil. He says, great, bring me the oil, uh, um, or not even, um, yeah, bring me the oil and bring me any containers that you can find. Keep on bringing containers, 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 bowls, cups, anything. And she brings, you know, she keeps on bringing stuff. They start pouring the oil and miraculously it keeps on pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. A little bit like the Hanukkah miracle, but this is way before Hanukkah, right? This is Hanukkah. The oil keeps on pouring. She's able to sell that oil you know, oil, oil is valuable to whatever extent. She sold it, she got the money, she was able to pay the debts, etc. So text one is a quick snippet from that 
uh, from that uh, that episode that talks about the threat of slavery. This is what would happen if you back in back in those days if you couldn't pay your debts, <laughs> the kids were liable to be. Uh, Sold the slaves. One second, let me just read this and we'll, we'll get to the question. So he says, text one, book of Kings. Now a woman, a wife of one of the disciples of the prophets, cried out to Elisha, saying, your servant, my husband, has died, and you know that your servant was God-fearing, and the creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. That was her plea to him. Can you help me? Because they're, they're about, this, this creditor is about to take my, my kids as slaves. So we see clearly here that in ancient times, whether it's ancient Rome or even in ancient Israel, I'm sure this was not uh, something that, that was abiding by Jewish laws. We'll see today that's definitely not kosher, but this was something that culturally was being done or historically was being done. People were being sold as slaves. Larry. It's a little off, but how does um, it pertains? Um, how, do you, what do you define, how does one become a prophet? How do you define Oh, <laughs> got it. All right, that's, yeah, that would be for another class. We'll have to do a session on that. How to become a prophet, or how to profit in six easy steps. Oh, that could be a book. <laughs> right, right. It's the other type of prophet. <laughs> this is with the F. That's the PH. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Um, the uh, so and then in later times, uh, they wouldn't throw the the debtor or the kids. Um, they, sorry, they wouldn't send them sell them as slaves. But what? became all the rage in, I guess, later times was debtors' prisons, where they would take the debtor and throw them or their entire family into prison with the hope that that would put the squeeze on other family members, extended family, and or the, the, the community to, um, to pay the ransom to get them out of prison and thus pay back the creditor. So in fact, in fact, this was done in England and other countries. And I'll tell you a story. It's a little Paul Harvey story. The story goes back to 1824. A Londoner by the first name John, I'm leaving out his last name because that's, because if I tell you his name now, it's not going to work. Anyway, the guy's name is John. John uh, was thrown into debtor's prison for an unpaid debt. His family was thrown in upheaval. His 12-year-old son had to work labeling bottles to earn a meager six shillings per week. Eventually, things improved. And uh, the young boy was able to grow up and achieve his own dreams to be a novelist. Who was this young boy? Charles Dickens. His father was thrown, had been thrown into debtor's prison. So this was a thing that was happening in England as of 1824. In fact, I think, I don't know if I have it in my notes, but I think even in the U.S. there were debtor's prisons. And in some places it... Uh, it, it, it lasted way longer than it should have. If you take a look, Charles Dickens writes about this. Look on page three over, uh, sorry, page 75, but the second page in your, uh, your booklets, text number two. Um, and let's go around. Uh, Deborah, are you up to reading? Sure. <clears throat> 30 years ago, there stood a few doors short of the Church of St. George in the borough of Southwark on the left-hand side of the way going southward, the Marshal Leah Prison. It had stood there many years before, and it remained there some years afterwards. But it is gone now, and the world is none the worse without it. <laughs> it was an oblong pile of barrack buildings, partitioned into squalid houses standing back to back, so that there were no back rooms, environed by a narrow paved yard, hemmed in by high walls, duly spiked at top. 
itself a close and confined prison for debtors. It contained within it a much closer and more confined jail for smugglers. Okay, so that's how he describes, Charles Dickens describes the prison that his father had been thrown into when he was a kid. And that really created a lot of trauma that he wrote about later on um, in his own life. And I think that's a picture of the Marshalsea prison. Okay, um, so what's clear is that in ancient times, or even not so ancient times, the law typically favored the creditors. The thought was the creditors, you, you lent the money, you got to get it back at, at whatever, you know, and using whatever means are at your disposal, whether it's physical harm, God forbid, whether it's slavery, God forbid, or whether it's debtor's prisons, God forbid, that's what was being done in order to the, the laws were on the books to, to help the creditors get back their money that they lent that is not being paid back. Well, in modern times, like today, in, in our country, the law has seemed, the pendulum has swung to the other way. So the law now does not favor the creditor. On the contrary, it actually favors the debtor. So we have a mechanism in our country. Again, that's the topic of today, bankruptcy. Um, an individual can file either Chapter 7 or and, and is there Chapter 7, Chapter 13, liquidation, there's reorganization, there's different options for both individuals and corporations to file for bankruptcy and thus absolve themselves or on some level get, get rid of that debt or that burden of debt. The law favors in many ways the debtor, not the creditor. So in ancient times, it definitely favored the creditor and the laws were allowed that that, that person could do pretty much anything to get back their money. Today, there's a get out of debt card, there's a button you can hit, and, uh, and, and, that, and that gets released. The problem is, or the question at least, I don't know if it's a problem, the question is, fine, so if the law favors the debtor now, but what about the creditor? Is there a mechanism, how does the creditor get, get made whole again, and how does that work? What rights of the creditor should be protected? How, if we don't want to allow, obviously for torture or slavery or, or prisons for this, but then what mechanisms can, what, what could be used for, um, to, to, get, to get the creditors paid back? Or, 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 or are we okay by, with saying that, you know, so that's it, you're out, you lost, right? You, you, you gave money, but now you're not getting it back, and, and that's it. Is that okay? Are we okay with that? Or would, you, we, or would we like something perhaps a little bit more balanced? And what would Judaism say about this? Because Jewish law has, as we'll see today, has a lot to say about the concept of bankruptcy, from a, unique, from a unique position. So the way we're going to get into the Jewish conversation is by going into our case study for the lesson. The case study is going to be found on the page that would ordinarily be marked as 76, but has a picture on it, so there's no 76. All right, case study. Um, Mindy, please read the case study. A diamond merchant declared According to the laws of a country outside Israel. He is exempt from any further collections from a standpoint of both law and decency. What is the law? Interesting, right? Now, you might say, well, what's the question? They went to court. They made a settlement. The guy made good on the settlement. He paid whatever percentage of the debt he had to pay. And that's it. Now, 20 years later, the guy's making money. Are you going to come after him now? Yes. That's the question. That's the question. 
Right? In other words, yes, that's, that's actually the question on the table. In other words, the question is being asked to Rabbi Yonah Metzger, who is the chief rabbi of Israel. That, at, and the, the ten-year term. So at some point he was the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yonah Metzger. It's a real question, in Jewish, at least from the position of Jewish law. Does Jewish law recognize the order of the court in a foreign country that, that has bankruptcy as a thing, the question is, is that a thing in Jewish law? Does Jewish law accept that? And if so, does is that, um, so if yes, then that agreement would be binding and, the, and the, the debtor would be off the hook. But if not, then maybe he should be on the hook, once again, from the position of Jewish law. That's literally the question that's coming in front of uh, Rabbi Metzger, is do we say that, the, that bankruptcy um, is a thing in Jewish law, or in this case, or do we say it's not a thing and the guy still owes the money? Valid? So they, they asked. They asked him, the guy did whatever he did, but they still asked him. Basically, it would have been the plaintiff, the creditor, right? Yeah. The creditor who was he owed the money. Right. right, the creditor right. says, yeah. this guy now lives in Israel. Oh, he's, oh. he's doing very well for himself. Yeah. Meanwhile, we got, we took this massive loss I don't know. It doesn't say how long ago. It could have been five years. It could have been two years. It could have been 12 years. I have no idea. But at some point in the past, this, this yeah. person or group took a major loss. And now they're saying this guy lives in Israel, right? They're all Jewish, presumably, right? So they go over it. So they sent a question into the chief rabbi saying, can we open this up again? Or is it closed? Because it's closed. In other words, it's, and there's a lot of questions. Um, uh, this question, there's a lot of, the, it's not just one question. question. It's a question within the question. Number one, does Jewish law agree with the concept of bankruptcy? If yes, then, then for sure it's done. But if not, well then, what, well, then we have a next question. Does, if Jewish law does not have its own version of bankruptcy or believe that bankruptcy is a thing, but what if that is the law in the country and Jewish law says respect the law of the land because the law of the land is a law, then do we say that since the law of the land is yes to bankruptcy, that that's a thing, then does that become okay in Jewish law? There's a few, there's a, we're going to go through all these considerations today. There's like three, four, five different considerations with this question. But at the, at the bottom line of this question is coming from one simple place. Somebody got hurt financially. This person now has the means to pay back. The question is, at this point, legally, ethically, or on any elite level, right, should they have to pay? Or should they pay? And make, make the other, other one whole. Yeah. And is there a statute of limitations? Sure. Yeah. I don't know that we're going to address that in today's session, but that could be. Sure. That could, that's a valid question. In the U.S., for financial stuff, is there a statute of limitations? Do we know? Is it statute of limitations means it's over? Is yeah, well, yeah, it would it would mean conceptually. I don't know if it would apply. Well, I really don't. Press your claim within a certain period of time. And if you have it, did press his claim. Yeah, but we don't know how long, right? So, right. Is it interesting? You have to make the claim mm. within two years. Right, that's a good point. He made it initially, and the point is now the guy has the money. Now he's in good times. Great, let him let him let him pay back. Yeah. Right. No, um, the settlement was made um, at a time when the man had no money. Right, but now he has. And but now he has money. Do we reopen it? That's the question. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. So, so you could think of it like, is he required to? You know, that's a, that's a, that's an answer. That's one question, right? But the other one is, is it the decent, right thing to do? That's in his own decision making, whether it's required or not. Could he? Good. Put, throw some money back. Excellent. Like that? Excellent. It's almost like when you receive a scholarship. 
or like a, a donation, like a, a, um, yeah. like a scholarship. And, and then you go. required to pay it back, but there's like this pay it forward mentality that like when you've established yourself and you do have the money, put back into that scholarship fund to help the next That makes sense. I like that. I like that. So right, so that's from from a decency. No, but from a decency right. In other words, we gave you, you right. So in this case, money. just to apply, because I like what you're saying. There's the argument. We're going to go through all this, but the argument would be what you're suggesting, perhaps, is that if you benefited from a mechanism that the law has, where where at this point you are off the hook, you can you can start and you're not being crushed, so you can get out of this and breathe. Great, you benefited from this, but now that you're doing better, now that you're doing okay, well, maybe now's the time to make that person whole again or more whole again. Good, that's the question. It's a question on the table. The question was asked. It was, it's a real question, a real case. It's a real case study that was asked to Rabbi Yonah Metzger. And uh, if you look, and not to belabor the point, but the question is asked from both the standpoint of law and decency. So both both ideas were, were mentioned. Now, what we're going to do now is take a look at some Jewish considerations and what we're going to discover, Everybody this is, find out what happened? Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 well, at the end, yeah, I mean, oh yeah, no, we're not jumping to the ending, that would be like, turn to the end of the novel, oh, the butler did it, all right, done. <laughs> is, in Jewish law, is there a difference if the creditor is Jewish or not Jewish? That's a really good question, for the purposes of our conversation, no. Yeah, in other words, that, it, it, um, conceptually, conceptually, no. Now, what we're going to do is present a contradictory, well, what will, what will seem to be a bit of a contradictory, um, uh, what's it called again? Uh, yeah, like a few different, uh, the, a view, the, what is the viewpoint of Judaism on debt in general? Right, someone's in debt, what, like what's the view? So we're going to have conflicting ideas, but we're going to synthesize them in a way that I think is going to make a lot of sense and resonate strongly. So let's jump into that. Um, is that working? I just want to hear what you have to say more than I hear. Got it. Okay. So how do we, so how does, um, I don't drink coffee. I don't even know if I can help you with that. I don't, That's all right. Um, That's why I came back. <laughs> so here we go. We're going to have a few different ideas and we're going to bring them together. So on the one hand, and the one hand is going to take a little while. We're not going to jump to the other hand yet. I'll let you know when we jump to the other. So on the one hand, Torah, Judaism, Jewish law, Jewish law oh. speaks very strongly about the rights of debtors not being harmed in the process of recouping, of getting, of repayment of a loan. Take a look at text 3A, Elaine. Please read this one. Yeah. The debtor, or the borrower, should not be harmed in the context of uh, collecting the loan. You'll see, you'll, you'll, you'll read text A, you'll... No, in the context of the creditor collecting the loan, the debtor shouldn't get hurt. Yeah, you'll, you'll see exactly what this means in 3A. When you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, you shall not behave like a debtor to him as a lender. If you take your neighbor's garment as security, you shall return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. And what shall he sleep and it shall be if he cries out to me i will hear because i am gracious listen to this the torah says if you lend money right don't be a lender one second when you're a lender don't be a lender what kind of a sh what kind of crazy rationale is that if you're a lender the torah says don't be a lender you know what it means 
Yeah. Don't be a lender like like all those other lenders out there that are that don't have Jewish law, don't have Torah. The Torah is telling us that if you're a lender, you have to abide by a higher standard. And what's that higher standard? So the the debtor, the borrower, gave you a mashkin. A mashkin is in English collateral. Gave you collateral, and the collateral is pajamas. That's the case that's given here, right? A night garment, PJs. They've given. So the Torah says. You're the lender. Now you're holding on to the collateral. Give it back at night. Why? Because that's their only garment. What are they sleeping? So, so what's the point? Understand the mindset. It's your collateral, and what are you told by in Torah to do? Give it back. What kind of collateral is that? The whole point is I have something on them. I can squeeze them. But they need to sleep. That's their only night garment. The point is not limited to pajamas and night garments. And it's, it's a perspective. The perspective is don't be vicious when coming after someone who borrowed money. You with me on this? I am, but this is an exodus. This is an yeah. exodus. So how, like, it's really, uh, really, uh, you know, very at the beginning of things, we see this. What happened, like, so many, many years after with the merchant of Oh, so like, I'm going to talk about that. Shylock? Yeah. Yeah, that was a lie. Again, Jewish law would never sanction Physical violence in the recall. Of course not. The whole thing is anti-Jewish law. As we'll see, we're building. We're literally building this argument. So when you think about debtors' prison, would you say that's kosher in Jewish law? Of course not. You have to give him back his garment at night to wear. Of course, debtors' prisons wouldn't be okay. Now let's continue with three B. Wait. Yeah. Sorry. I think we don't. Um, there's just a word in here that we kind of blew across, which is that we a poor person. Yes. So I, I think that's an interesting distinction. Good. It almost sounds more like charity. In yes. Case, that money I'm giving to charity in recognition of that. That's and the vast majority, I think there's just a difference between somebody who borrows money, for example, I, want to, I put it on my credit card at Costco. That doesn't make me a poor person. Right. But I'm still expected to pay it back whether the guy who started Costco is Jewish or not. Excellent. Good. And a, and a poor person that all he has is a night garment that I have to give back. It feels like they're talking about the latter, yes. not the person that wants to buy the Lamborghini. Correct. So what you're so right. So let me just just reframe what you're or just repeat what you're saying. So we might say that yes, the Torah is speaking in a very specific context of someone who doesn't have who borrows because they need and now doesn't have the money to repay. So you, there's there's more of a compassion that we need that we're obligated to have. Whereas if somebody's borrowing, let's say, for a business or investment or something else, then then maybe we can you know tighten the screws a little bit more. Maybe it's not the, the last piece of collateral that they have or whatever it is, and maybe there's a bit of a different standard that we can hold them to. That's a that's a good that's a valid point. And but let's uh, hold that idea. Let's see how the rest of the text play out, and we'll see if maybe we can make a distinction. Say one more thing. Yeah. But when it says you shall not. Talking about the poor person, you shall not behave toward him as a lender. Maybe that's what they're saying: is give it to not mm, a lender. Right, right. So along the lines of someone who's poor and they, they need some money, so don't be a lender. It's more of a charity. Don't look at yourself as a lender who's who's collecting, etc. Good. Val, I think I think those po- two points are complimentary. You know, but I I understood. This is a real Jewish conversation. Yeah, we have I, all this. <laughs> because I understood also the opposite, which means just because he's poor, it doesn't mean that you cannot be some kind of lender mm. because you, you're 
it doesn't it could have said don't lend just just give and it doesn't say that and it says return it him before sunset and it doesn't say return it before sunset and then and then just never collect it back it sounds that it would say return it before sunset it's yours again during the day yeah in the morning and, you know give it back before sunset exactly which means um i don't know i i think it says you can still land but with a with this with the compassion with the, with the compassion yeah. it doesn't say don't okay land yeah Let's, uh, let, let's, let's, let's look at a few more texts. Now, that was the biblical text, which could have been in a certain context, but let's see how it's been uh, kind of canonized within the parameters of Jewish law. And this is a 3B, is from Maimonides, Mishneh Torah, laws of creditor and debtor. So this is going to be very helpful and very, um, very pertinent. Um, Larry, are we up to you? Yeah. 3B. 3B. According to biblical law, when a creditor demands payment of his debt, if not property belonging to the debtor, <coughs> to the debtor is found, or, or only those items that he is permitted to keep are found, the debtor goes free and will do not, and we do not imprison him. As it says, you shall not behave toward him as a lender. So, thank you. So here we have Ramba Maimonides, and he is now opening this up I don't know if he's opening this up. You know, the evolution of Jewish law is, of course, you have the biblical verses, and then you have the Talmud, hundreds of pages of elaboration on every single law, and then the conclusions are written up in the Code of Jewish Law, which Maimonides' work is one of those codes of Jewish law. And so what he says here, he opens this up to, it seems from this reading, all cases of creditors and debtors. Um, you know, maybe not talking about night garments, but the point is that when the creditor is demanding payment of the debt, so we don't throw the debtor in prison. There is no mechanism in Jewish law, or there's no allowance in Jewish law for debtor's prisons, right? The debtor goes, for, just to quote my honest, the debtor goes free and we do not imprison him. Not well, if it has a big if. No, 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 one second. But it says if no property is found. In other words, in a case where you think that the only way to get money from this guy is by, is by locking him up, you still can't. That's the point. If he has the money that you can collect, you're allowed to collect, which we'll speak about soon. That's going to be the other hand. But on, 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 this, on this side of the hand, if there's, no, if, there's nothing to, if there's nothing to collect, and you're thinking the only way to do this is to throw him in jail, and that way we'll get some, somebody to, 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 to pay his ransom, you can't do that. Right? That's 3B. All right. Eric, please read 3C. And this is, again, the rush, which is another halachic work that, uh, that just uh, digs deeper into this. Creditor cannot force the borrower to work for him, nor sell him on account of the unpaid debt. This is so even if the borrower stipulated that his body will serve as collateral, it is certainly forbidden to torment him till he pays. Listen to this. Even if he agreed to it, you can't physically harm him. What does that say about Shylock? What does it say about Merchant of Venice? Right? Even if the other guy agrees, yes, I agree, pain of, I don't know, torture, God forbid still wouldn't fly in Jewish law. You can't. Even if the other guy says, do it to me, you don't do it. All right. So it's clear. Yeah. So you better be very careful when you lend money. Oh, oh. Well, so, yes, we're going to address that in a second. Good, 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 good. Now, that's on the one hand. So on the one hand, what we see here is that in Jewish law, there's no, you don't hurt them, 
right? There's no mutilation. You don't hurt them. You don't sell them. You don't imprison them. That's not a Jewish thing. Yeah. So, 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 one second. So, it would seem that who has all the rights in Judaism? The debtor, the borrower, because you can't, you can't actually squeeze them too hard. Mindy. Does Bruce have anything to do with like the fact that it's nighttime or daytime? Like, during the day, when you can be seen, we'll see it as like we took your pajamas as collateral, but if nighttime, you didn't have it. Is it a, like have to do with like that? This is outward appearances, like according, like your neighbors will see that we did take right. that collateral from you. You are like feeling that loss. You could say that. We're I mean, that, it back. that might be a deeper psychological. Like, I, I, to me, to me, I'm reading it as simple. Like if if it's something where he needs it, that's all he has. I then you like can't. Could be. Right. Right. So it's like kind of like on the down low. Could be. Yeah. Now, let's go on the other hand. So, again, it would seem that uh, the, the debtor has all the rights in Judaism and Jewish law, but not so fast because we're about to get to text number four. Um, oh, actually, one second. No, 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 before we get to text four. Um, the question that we're going to ask is, does Judaism have a mechanism? You know, if, 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 if it's favoring the debtor so much, you can't throw the debtor into prison, you can't sell him as a slave, etc. Does that mean that in Judaism we let the guy go... Uh, you know, uh, Scott free. Do you do you allow him to go or her to not pay the debt? Is there debt discharge in Judaism? Well, it would seem that there might be that there might be a clause for debt discharge in Judaism, i.e., like a form of bankruptcy. In text number four, Marilyn, please read text number four. At the end of seven years, you shall make a release. This is the manner of the release: to release the hand of every creditor from what he lent his friend. He shall not exact from his friend or his brother because the time of the release for God has arrived. So, sabbatically. So, once, well, hold on. We would think, but I'm about to debunk that. So, this is Shemitah. This is the sabbatical year. This is biblical law, and it really applied in ancient Israel. And the law was as such. Every seven years, and it's not seven years from the loan, it's an objective seven-year cycle that's just set on, on a calendar. So every seven years, the seventh year, all debts are released. All loans are forgiven. So one might say, ah, oh, exactly. Jewish law, biblical law, Torah law, uh, favors the debtor, favors the borrower. We say to the borrower, we're not going to throw you in jail. We're going to give you back your night garment. We're not going to hurt you. We're not going to sell you as a slave. And every seven years, you are you hit a reset button and you're good to go. That's what it's. That's what it seems like. Yes, in Israel, that's what it would seem like. <laughs> Another reason to go. That that's what it seems like. However, 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 um, I'm raising this to debunk it. That is not the reason for this mitzvah because this mitzvah it was not given only was what this sabbatical release of loans and debts. Sorry, debts was not given solely to someone who could not repay the debt. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah. It was to all debts. And it wasn't about the ability or inability to pay it back. It wasn't to give someone a fresh start. That was not the intention. It was literally to remind the Jewish community in ancient Israel that God was in charge. And one of the ways to really demonstrate that every seven years, in addition to allowing your field to be ownerless in life. You don't work your field also on that seventh year, the sabbatical year. The reason was to say, we trust in God so much, we're not going to work the field, we're not going to collect our loans, and God will provide. This was a built-in mechanism in Judaism to almost surrender 
to God's ability to, to give us and to support us and to take care of us. This was a national way of demonstrating faith in God, kind of being financially reckless, right? We're not going to work. We're not going to collect debts. God's got this. And as long as the Jewish people kept it, it worked. When they started fooling around, it didn't work. But that's, that was, so, so can we use this sabbatical year as a source that Judaism treats that's in a way that there should be a mechanism to, to end it? No, this is not the source of bankruptcy in Judaism. This is not about the person can't pay, so we're letting them not pay. This is about God. This is a spiritual law. This is not a practical, I can't pay back, can I get a clean start? So we still do not have a source in Judaism that points to bankruptcy. In fact, in fact, we have proofs the other way. That Jewish law is very specific about the obligation to pay back every single penny, except for the sabbatical year, which was, you know, a specific context. But otherwise, every penny should be paid back. Text 5a. Irena, please read text 5a. When a lender demands payment of a loan, even if the lender is wealthy and the borrower is struggling for his basic subsistence, we are not merciful in judgment. Instead, we expropriate all the movable property that the borrower owns until the last penny of the debt is paid. If the movable property is not sufficient, we expropriate real property. Wow. Look at this. The same Rambam, the same Maimonides that said, you can't hurt him. You can't throw him into prison. You can't sell him as a slave. The same Maimonides also says, you got to pay back every single penny. This is a general idea, which I think is really powerful. And in many of the classes that I teach that are comparative U.S. and Jewish law, I try to emphasize this. And if you've heard me teach these classes before, you're probably sick of me saying this, but I'm not, so I'm going to say it again. <laughs> the, the foundational distinction between United States law and Jewish law is two words rights or obligations. The U.S. system is driven by rights. You have a right as a borrower to be free of a burden that is overwhelming for you. That's a right of bankruptcy that the law gives you in this country. In Judaism, there's no such thing as rights. They don't give you rights. There's no rights in Torah. The Torah never says you have a right to be honored by your children. There's an obligation to honor your parents. There's no rights. It's obligations. You have the right to respect someone else's property. No, do not steal. Torah speaks in very clear ob ob obligatory terms. In this context, it would also be very clear. And the Torah would give obligations to both sides of the transaction of the loan. It would say to the, say to the, to the, to the lender, you have an obligation to be a mensch. Give them back their pajamas. Don't hurt them. Don't sell them as a slave. And don't throw them in into jail. That's your obligation. And you, you got to pay back every single penny. Everyone has obligations. There's not, it's not a conversation about rights. I have a right to a new beginning. You have an obligation to be a mensch. You have an obligation to be a mensch. You have, you, you have to do what's right. Lend in a way like that you're a mensch and borrow like a mensch. Even if you're poor. Even if you're poor, what we say, so here, here's the idea. Here's how this plays out. Jewish law says, if the person is impoverished, we collect 
everything except for their basic necessities, right? That would, be, that would be the equivalent of the garment that they need to sleep in. So the basic necessities, they have to keep. By the way, I'm about to get to, and just give me like uh, maybe five minutes, I'm about to get to an idea that I think when that lands, like we're slow, you know like in cartoons, they would light the, when the thing would explode, you light the thing and then it goes yeah. along the path until it hit the fuse, until it, uh, I've lit a fuse and I'm telling you when I drop this idea, Everyone, you guys will be like, ah, now it makes sense. It's going to make so much sense in a second. But let's just see how Torah obligates the debtor. Yeah. Which one? Um, 5A and 3B? Which part? Well, Mamani says you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't take this stuff. It's not opposite. Oh. One is on the lender and one is on the... This is no, yes, no, but, but there's also the idea that when it's his only garment to sleep, you got to give it back. But if he has a second garment, take every other second garment. That's the point. Take every other garment than the one he needs right now. But everything else can be, can be exposed, can be taken. Now let's continue. I'm going to read some 5B. Look at this. We tell the debtor, look at this. We tell the debtor, page 80, bring all the movable property that you have. Don't leave out even a single needle. Show us all your assets. We give the debtor food for 30 days, clothing for 12 months, not including things like silken clothes or a golden turban. Yeah, that's going to be taken from you. You don't, you don't need your silk clothes and golden turbans. A couch to sit upon, a bed, to sh a bed and sheets fit for the debtor to sleep upon. Words, these are the things that are left in the spirit of 3A, where the Torah says you got to return the night garment. If he's a craftsman, we give him two tools of each type. Even a Torah scholar is not spared his books, or even a Torah scroll. They are like the rest of his possessions that are seized by the creditor. The Torah says, Jewish law says, again, both sides, everyone gets, gets spoken to. You let money, good, be a mensch. Don't, go, don't hurt this guy. You can't, you can't force him into, la into, into labor or slavery. You can't do that. But you, we're going we're gonna to take your assets. That's the way it works. Let's continue. Let's continue. We're not, you know, you're a mechanic. We're not going to take the wrenches. Yeah. Because you've got to make money so you can pay for that. Boom. Right. Thank you for pointing that out. The reason why we leave the tools is because what's the objective here? The objective is that the guy should pay back. The, so why would we handcuff them and say, now you have to pay back? You're not letting me. So we have to give a mechanism to make it happen. Now, um, text 6, Psalms, oh, the wicked person borrows and does not repay. So what's clear is that Judaism believes that, a, that someone who borrows should repay. However long it takes, you have to repay, and how much? Every last penny. Now, listen to this. Let's get in. We're not going to do this, this, this chart, Learn Activity 1. We'll save that. You can do that, uh, you know, at some other time. But let's now think about what's the logic of the Jewish system. What's the logic? So number one, this is very important. In Jewish law, when you give a loan, and this obviously does not, is not the way we practice things here in this country, or most countries, or any country, but Jewish law says when you, when you, uh, when you make a loan, you cannot charge interest. Right? That's what it says. Yeah, there's no interest. I know. Go call up American Express and tell them what Jewish law says. <laughs> Good luck. Yes, you will not be able to get through the menu on that one. So here's the point. Jewish law says you have to lend... You have to lend without interest, which means that the, that, that the lender is putting themselves out because you're lending, and what are you getting back? Just the money that you gave. You're not really getting back much not, other than a mitzvah. You're not getting anything back aside from that. So the Torah is very careful in protecting them and, and the money that they give, so, which means that the Torah is obligating the borrower. Bar, you borrowed? you gotta, you got to make that guy whole. But here's the question that everybody wonders, 
and this is here's where it detonates. The reason for bankruptcy is here you have a person who unfortunately is being crushed by the debt, and they need a mechanism to get out of the debt. And so we want to give them a mechanism where they can, you know, push a button and be free of this crush. And in Judaism, Jewish law, we just said that you have to pay back to every single penny. That seems to be crushing. How do we, where's the mechanism? Listen to this. Also, yes, that and, and this. In Judaism, in Jewish law, in Jewish, Jewish law and, and society has a mechanism for this. What happens if somebody doesn't have money? What happens in Jewish, in Jewish law, in, in, the, in Jewish society? Someone who's struggling, what's the provision? There's a, there's a word for this. It's called tzedakah. Who's the obligation on tzedakah on? Listen to this. On the, the other person. On the community. The community bands together. There's always, in every community, there's a communal fund, whether it's public or private, whatever it is, a communal fund that helps out those that are struggling. In other words, the burden is shared by the community, everybody. What happens when someone defaults on a loan and they declare bankruptcy? Who pays for that? The community. One person. The lender. The lender takes takes the hit. In Judaism, sorry about that, in Judaism, the, the logic of the Jewish system is why should one person shoulder the responsibility of this person who's struggling? We, not that Judaism is uncaring. Oh, we're going to extract every penny, but they don't have any money. There's, a, there's, a, there's an app, there's a system for this. The system, there's that for that. There's a system for this. The system is called tzedakah. But tzedakah is something shared. That cost is shared by the collective. Whereas bankruptcy shifts the burden and the, and the loss on one. That is, in a Jewish system, fundamentally unfair. From a Jewish perspective, why should the person who went out of their way to be the one to lend, to be the one, why should they also take the full loss? No worries. Why should they also take the full loss? Right? That doesn't make sense either. So Judaism says that the person who lent should get paid back over time, whatever, every single penny. I, this person needs money, there's tzedakah for that. Why should this person be the only one giving tzedakah to that person? Let this person get paid back and let tzedakah be shared by everybody. That makes sense. By whom? Sorry? Say it again. Who should pay, who should pay back the lender? The borrower. No, no, the borrower. The borrower has an obligation to pay back the lender. They have a transaction, right? They have, they have, a, they have an arrangement. So the borrower, Jewish law says, you borrowed money, you have to pay it back. Ah, you don't have the money? All right, we'll work. You create a payment plan, pay it back over the years, whatever it is. But you still, you never lose that obligation. You always have the obligation to pay back. I, the, the borrower doesn't have the money now, doesn't have a lot of money. All right, so there's tzedakah for that. And by the way, when the person receives tzedakah, we don't take that money back to the, to the, to the lender. Right? That stays by the borrower. That's separate. It's a separate cheshbon. It's not like, oh, now you have assets, we're going to pull it. That's, that's for their needs, for food, for whatever it is. So actually, if there is no... Oh, hold on, say, Randall, one second. Yeah, Eileen? Why would the borrower borrow money when he knows the community will Good. charity? Good. That's, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe, maybe, because maybe psychologically, he or she didn't want to, you know, get a handout. Maybe they wanted to pay it back. Whatever it is, and, and who knows, uh, it, it, there's so many different scenarios in which this could play out. But, but in, in concept, it's a very simple system. If you lend money, 
you have to be a mensch. If you borrow money, you have to pay it back. If you don't have money, there's a mechanism for tzedakah. But we don't shift the entirety of the burden of this one person on this one person who lent them. You lent money, and now you can take the whole loss for them struggling? That doesn't make sense either. You should get paid back. Everyone should ship in to help this guy, and that's it. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask the question with a, with a modern mind, which I don't think it applies. But the lender, the lender is doing tzedakah uh, anyways in modern in the modern world. If he cannot, what's the thing? Take interest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Correct. So in today's world, so we would call that. You, well, it would be a. It would be a. I mean, it's it's a form of tzedakah, but it's really. I mean, it's a loan. It's going to be paid back. Right. It's tzedakah right. with a string attached. Like a right. reeling it but back in. in. But in today's world, it would take a loss. Correct. Because money, if it's not growing, it's lo- right. right. Correct. Yeah. I, I'm sure I misunderstood. If I think you, I think if you can't charge interest, is that what we said here? Or yeah. Like, all right. Can't, why would you lend money? Oh. Uh, uh, maybe I missing. Good. The Torah says that if somebody needs and they want to pay back because they don't want to get a handout for free, they want to get but then pay back. So then that's where a, so a that's lender a comes mitzvah. in. It's a mitzvah. But it's not a business thing. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's not a business. It's, it's not. A, it's not an investment. It's, it's, there is one second. So it's very important. No, no, no. Because no, you're touching on a, you're, I think you're touching on a very important point that your question is is clarifying. Um, in Jew- Jewish law allows for investments, which means that if you're investing in the business, you're absolutely allowed to take a percentage back. It's not interest, but it's definitely a percent. So if you invest 10000 in a business, you're not expecting to get back only 10000 You're expecting to get back, I don't know, 12000 20000 make it, make it big, like Make it rain, right? You're expecting something bigger than that. That's okay. That's kosher. So even though it's a loan for the business... You're taking interest in the profits, but it's not considered a loan. It's not considered interest. It's not a loan. Right, it's an investment. It's an investment. So, but if it's a loan in Jew, so Judaism distinct, Jewish law would distinguish between two things: um, an investment and a loan. An investment is for business, and absolutely, you get more, you get profit. A loan is more for charitable, not charitable, but it's more for I don't know for a mitzvah. In that case, you don't get what's it called? You don't get um, interest, but you need to get paid back every single penny, number one. And number two... Okay, this is very important because in my modern mind, lending... I got it. Lending is a mitzvah. Yeah. And that's and that's the key to this. And, yeah. Does the communal tzedakah funds that everybody is obligated to give, like the 10% mm-hmm. or whatever, does that... Do those communal funds go to pay back the creditors? No. No, no that's the point. Because who? Because the community doesn't have an obligation to the creditor. The borrower has... Um, th- that relationship, Jewish law um, keeps between those two individuals. So to say, well, this guy can't pay back, so we're all going to pay back this guy, that might be nice, but that's not necessarily what we consider tzedakah to go toward. Tzedakah is not to pay, is not to necessarily go back to the creditor. Tzedakah is to help people that are struggling. So we say like this: if somebody is struggling, we ha- Ju- Judaism has again. We're speaking about in Jewish law, which is part of a Jewish uh, communal fra- uh, um, framework and fabric. So in 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 the Jewish community, uh, the fabric would be like this: someone who's struggling, tzedakah. 
If that person borrows money and agreed to pay back, they have to pay back. Those are two separate conversations. If you need to borrow, if you need tzedakah, there's tzedakah. If you if you borrowed and need to pay back, you need to pay back. How much? I don't know how much you borrowed. Right? You got to pay the same amount. There's, the credit doesn't get tzedakah funds, no. No. So he's still out the money. Well, he gets, has to get it from that guy. Yeah. If he, if he now can't pay his bills, so you can get from tzedakah. But tzedakah doesn't cover, doesn't, tzedakah is not. It's not a guarantor. Correct. Thank you. That's a good way of saying it. Right? right. If we want to use business terms, it's not, tzedakah is not a guarantor for the guy's loan. Exactly. The community is not guaranteeing the loan. The community is saying someone who's struggling can't, can't put food on the table. We got you. Close, sure. Help with tuition, absolutely. I mean, we, there's a community fund over here. I'm on the. I'm on the. Um, there's a board. J-E-L-F. Oh yeah, no, it's right. So that's a larger Atlanta wide. But then there's, the synagogue also has one. I recently was put onto the on the committee or this whatever to the whatever. So I, you know, cases come up or cases, whatever situations come up, and 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 you help out. And and it's it's for that. It's for people that. But it's not a guarantor. For a loan, so what's important is is to just kind of keep everything separate, and that's what I think Jew- Jewish law does a really good job at keeping things separate. We don't say that because you know we feel compassion for the for the borrower, so uh, so they they can get out of paying it. No, you have to pay it, and this guy because he needs to get it back. We don't say that the lender is allowed to torture the guy. He can't torture the guy, right? So everyone's got obligations. You can't go after him viciously. You have to pay it back. If anyone, if any party is struggling, there's a tzedakah fund for that. So there's, but we keep everything, everything uh, separate. The major difference between the Jewish system and the U.S. system is simply this. If you lent money and the guy can't pay back, is there a scenario where you will never get paid back? Right? Legally, in the U.S., the answer is yes. In Jewish law, there's also conceptually yes, if he never actually pays back, if he never earns the money. But it's not like legally we wipe that clean. Right? We wouldn't legally wipe that clean. So, if the debtor receives money from the community, yes. he is still obligated to try to make Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that is, one second... Let's see that. Um, oh, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Text 8. Text 8. This is, this is the case. Look at text 8. 83. Okay? The, the Radvaz. It's going back like to the 1400s. You asked me about the case of Ruvain. That's not his real name. Uh, a poor individual. No, Ruben is always like the you know, first of the 12 tribes. They always just throw. Yeah, they. Okay, so it's like a pseudonym. You asked me about the case of Ruben, a poor individual who receives a weekly stipend from the charity fund. His creditor demands that the custodian of the fund repay the debt from the charity funds allotted to Ruben. Is that permitted? That's exactly our question. I told you no, but this is where I got it from. I didn't make it up. How would I know that? How would I know the answer to that question on my own? Reply. Huh? I don't. He should only be collecting what he needs right now, not for right what he needs, his necessities, not to cover his his debts. Yeah. Reply. As a matter of law, once charity has been given to the poor person, there is a dispute among the great legal authorities as to whether the creditor can seize these funds for the payment of his loan. One opinion is that it is forbidden to do so. The logic is that if the charitable giver had known that the creditor would seize the charitable gift, he would never have given it, given it at all. Words, why would people give tzedakah if it's a guarantor for a loan? That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not the thing. However, 
Uh, Rabbi Simcha and others ruled that the creditor could take his unpaid loan from charity given, uh, given to the poor. The debate only pertains to surplus charity. However, with regard to the minimal charity allotted per week for the debtor's sustenance, no one argues that the creditor can take this. In other words, no one says that you're allowed to. Uh, if the poor person has enough to live on without those funds, then why, should, why would he be taking from the charity fund? If he does not have enough to live, then how can one imagine that he should die of hunger while his creditor is repaid? Therefore, in our case, everyone agrees that the creditor cannot claim it. In other words, what's, what's going on here? You're taking a, a weekly stipend. What's that going for? Basic necessities. If it's more than the basic necessities, then why are you taking more? And if it's the basic necessities, then how can that guy take back for the repayment of a loan? Right. It should only be exactly what's needed. That's what's being paid for the tzedakah fund. If there's another fund, of a loan repayment fund, if people want to do that, sure, but that's not what we're talking about here. Right. Oh, that's what God created GoFundMe for. Exactly. There was an incident in Egypt in which a creditor took money from the custodian of the fund for more than a year. When I found out about it, I made him repay everything that he had taken. You cannot take, the creditor cannot take money from Sadaka. That's the point. So what's, what's, the, what's the big idea here? The big idea here is that we have a nuanced view. On the one hand, um, Judaism is very kind toward the borrower by saying that the borrower it doesn't have to worry about his safety, personal safety, doesn't have to worry about you know sitting in jail, doesn't have to worry about being sold as a slave or being beat up on the streets. You don't have to worry about that in Jewish law. At the same time, you got to repay it. We never let you off the hook. We'll, we'll be nice about it, and, and you can get tzedakah for your needs. Well, you, you will be taken care of. However, you got to go to work. You got to make the money, or just figure out a way how to get back the money. You got. You got. There's. There's no button that you press to say, well, now I no longer have to pay that. That debt is still a debt. That's the point. There's no clearing of that debt. Um, okay. So with that in mind, we are going to look at now the final question, which is, okay, fine. So Jewish law does not believe in bankruptcy. That's the point, right? Jewish law says no to bankruptcy. Even if you declare bankruptcy, you still owe the money. It doesn't matter what... Right, but the question is, if the if the if the secular courts made a provision, and Jewish law follows the law of the land, does that all, does that apply to bankruptcy? In other words, remember the question that was asked to the rabbi at the beginning of the class. So they, I was probably Belgium because it was with diamonds. So I'm assuming it's Belgium, right? So in Belgium they have bankruptcy. So the guy, the guy that has bankruptcy, uh, let's say he has to pay fifty cents on the dollar, fifty percent. So now he moves to Israel. He pays the 50%. He moves to Israel. Now he's making money again. And now the guy wants to come back at him. Can he say, so, so now the rabbi knows, let's say the rabbi is going through the stop process. So now the rabbi Metzger, right? So he knows that in Jewish law, there's no such thing as bankruptcy, which means that if you borrow money, however long it takes, you, you're obligated to pay it back. Great. But Belgium doesn't believe in that. And Belgium said he is off the hook. So once he's off the hook, do we have to follow the law of the land and say, it's over? Or can we bring it back? That's the question. Text number 10 on page 86, the law of the government is the law. That's the law of the land. So here's, here's the answer to this. The answer is very complicated. The reason why it's complicated is because it's a matter of dispute. And we don't have time or... There's it, it, a lot of... No. Okay. If, you look, if you want to see it, if you want to, it's figure 3.1. And there's two texts, text A and B. And the short of it is, I'm, we're not going to do it inside. I'll tell, I'll tell it to you outside. There's a machloket, a dispute. Uh, it's page 87, figure three point. It looks like this. It's like a box. Um, and there's text A and text B. One is the Ramah and one is the Shach. These are two great um, halachic uh, codifiers. And the Shach and the Ramah 
have a dispute about this very question or about the question of when the law of the land, you know, when you follow the law of the land or when you don't follow the law of the land. And the short of it is like this. According to Ramah, you adopt the law of the land when it's beneficial to most people. In other words, if, it's a, if it seems to be beneficial, then you adopt the law of the land. According to the Shach, you only adopt the law of the land when it's not explicitly against Jewish law. So the first one, Ramah, is when it's Ramah says when it's, when it's beneficial and when it's beneficial. Yeah, when it, when it has a utility. According to the Shach, you, you only follow the law of the land when it's not in opposition to a Jewish teaching on the same subject. So if, Jew, if Judaism would have a distinction, sir. Oh, so according to the Shach, good. So according, not in opposition to the Jewish view on the matter. So you guys all set, by the way? Okay, so according to, they're about to kosher at someone's house. So according to the Shach, blow torches and everything. Accord, no, just according to the Shach, who says that you only follow the law there when it's not in opposition to the Jewish law, since Jewish law does not believe in bankruptcy, in debt absolution, Judaism says you got to pay every penny eventually, so therefore the law of the land would not apply, which means that the Belgium, assuming they're Belgium, the Belgium diamond dealer can go after, according to Jewish law, don't bring an international law on me now, but can go to Israel, to a Betin, and try to collect the money, even though they made a deal 20 years prior, 50 cents on the dollar. So that's according to the Shach. According to Ramah, since this law, since bankruptcy is not immoral, in other words, it's beneficial to one party, but it's, 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 it's intended, but it's intended, right, but it's intended, right, okay, right, 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 to at least get 50%, at least get 50, right, so it's, the intention is positive and beneficial, even though Jewish law has a different approach to the best ideal way, but since it's not an immoral law, fundamentally immoral, according to the Ramah, the Ramah would actually say, it seems that the Ramah would say that if this is a case where you do respect the law of the land, and therefore the deal was made, the deal is done. Who do you go by? Oh, good. <laughs> now, here we go. So now we have, we're still deadlocked. One second. We're still. If he stayed in Belgium, yeah. he didn't go to Israel, yeah. he'd still be off the hook. For sure, by for sure, according to the secular courts, absolutely. Okay. The question, though, is from a Jewish legal perspective, because Jewish law also respects the law of countries. So now, would Jewish law respect bankruptcy because that is a law in the books in other countries or in secular law? So again, according to one opinion, yes, because it's it's a moral and just law. But according to the other opinion, no, there's because there's a Jewish stance on the matter that's the opposite in which case we wipe it out. Um, so here's what Rabbi Metzger says. Oh, you're not gonna like this. You guys are not gonna like this. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, text 13. So, well, it starts with text 13. Basically, okay, one second, one second, one second. So we have a deadlock, right? Yeah. Ramah and the Shach. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's, I'm sorry, and it's a, it's a pretty big deadlock because let's say the guy borrowed $10 million and only paid back five. Yeah. It's a $5 million question. And it's like, well, the Ramah says he doesn't owe him anymore. And the Shach says he still owes him. It's not like a thumb twist. It's $5 million. Right? Judaism's, are, do you owe the money? Bottom line. It's a lot of money at stake. What's the, what's the halakha? What's the law? Rabbi Metzger, since it's deadlocked, in Ju- since there's two major opinions on this, in most cases... The Rahman and the Shach would agree with each other. If it's just, it's usually Jewish. Jew- but here you have an interesting case where bankruptcy, 
it, it makes sense, but it's not the Jewish way. So that's why, that's why you have this distinction. So Rabbi Metzger took the approach of let's try to compromise. Let's try to create a pshara, which means a compromise. Take a look at text. We're skipping a few texts here. Take a look at, oh my gosh, skipping a bunch of texts here, a bunch of pages. Uh, text 13. 13. Page 92. In the case, all right, you ready? In the case of an, of an insolvent debtor who settled with his creditors, by repaying a certain percentage of the debt according to bankruptcy law, and who afterwards was restored to his fortune, listen to this, the latter-day legal decisors, the Ramon, the Shach, are locked in disagreement as to whether or not he is obligated to repay the outstanding debt. Outstanding debt. Let's say it's $5 million. Therefore, listen to this. So what do you do? How do you... The latter, when I say latter day, this is going back just a few hundred years. These were giants. The Ramon, the Shach, these were giants. Ah, Rabbi Metzger, what's he? You all ask, so what do we do? He asks himself, what do I do? So listen to what he says. Therefore, all must be done to reach a compromise between the debtor and the creditors in order to satisfy all legal opinions. Because he felt, how could he? He literally could not rule on this. Because how could he take one side over the other, black and white? He said, you know what we have to do? We have to bring the two sides together. At the end of the day, this guy has the money now. No one's arguing, huh? Right. At the end of the day, this guy has the money to repay the five million. But at the end of the day, they already settled in court in Belgium. So what do you do? Okay. Have let's let's let have them talk. He's making a compromise on the compromise. Yes. He's compromised on the compromise. Now that's so that's the class. That was the class. There is one more PS, which you're gonna love from Mark Twain. You're gonna love the PS. This is text fourteen. I'll tell you a story. Tell you a story about Mark Twain. Mark Twain opened up a publishing house with a few partners. He had two partners with him, so there's three partners total. They each owned a third. They fell into hard times, it was mismanaged, whatever it was, and they declared bankruptcy. And they paid pennies on the dollar to the creditors. It bothered Mark Twain. Even though he was only a minority stakeholder, it bothered him. And so at the age of 60, Mark Twain decided that he is going to repay personally every last penny to the creditors. So what did he do? He went on a speaking tour. He charged money. He was you know, a celebrity. He went on a speaking tour and he took all the proceeds to pay back. This might not be required by the law. So, sorry. Let me just say that again. In... In the United States, this is definitely not required by the law, but this is what he felt was the right thing to do. And it's a beautiful Jewish sentiment. He's a match. Take a look. Take a look, text 14. This is what he writes. By the way, he, where did he write this? In an op-ed in the New York Times. What was the date? August 17, 1895. Who would have thought that people were writing op-eds? So gesund. Mark Twain writes in the New York Times in 1895. August 17th. What's today? August 23rd. Five days and almost a hundred and... Oh, gosh, my math. And a, and a bunch of years ago. 130, 128 years ago. Almost exactly 128 years ago, Mark Twain wrote the following. It has been reported that I sacrificed for the benefit of the creditors the property of the publishing firm whose financial backer I was and that I am now lecturing for my own benefit. This is an error. I intend the lectures 
as well as the property for the creditors. The law recognizes no mortgage on a man's brain, and a merchant who has given up all he has may take advantage of the rules of insolvency and start free again for himself. But I am not a businessman, and honor is a harder master than the law. It cannot compromise for less than 100 cents on the dollar, and its debts never outlaw. From my, this is beautiful, he's a good writer, right? You would think. <laughs> he knew how to write, <laughs> apparently. He should do this for a living. Um, from my reception thus far on my lecturing tour, I am confident that if I live, I can pay off the last debt within four years, after which, at the age of 64, I can make a fresh and unencumbered start in life. Can you imagine? He's 60 years old. This is in 1895. How did they travel? Who knows? He probably walked everywhere. I'm kidding. I, he, it was, they, automobile was invented when? Oh, right. when it comes. No automobile. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I do not enjoy the hard travel and broken rest inseparable from lecturing. And if it had not been for the imperious, imperious moral necessity of paying these debts, which I, have ne which I never contracted, but which were accumulated on the faith of my name by those who had a presumptive right to use it, I should never have taken to the road at my time of life. I could have supported myself comfortably uh, by writing, but writing is too slow for the demands that I have to meet. Look at that. He's saying to write a book and to sell it, uh, it's going to take too long. I got I to make the money now. Therefore, I've begun to lecture my way around the world. I meant when I began to give my creditors all the benefit of this, but I begin to feel that I am gaining something from it too, and that my dividends, if not available for banking purposes, may be even more satisfactory than oh. theirs. This is, I just got the goosebumps, even though I've read this before, I literally got the chills, um, because this is beautiful. Here's a guy, and, and he says clearly, he never borrowed the money himself, but he was a partner. And as a partner, they used he, Mark Twain's publisher, whatever, they, whatever it was called, but Mark Twain was involved. They used him, and, and he agreed that they, should, they could use him for this purpose. And they borrowed the money, and they only paid pennies on the dollar, whatever it was. He said, I personally, I'm off the hook. Doesn't matter. This is, the Jew, this is a Jewish approach. I'm not saying he was driven by a Jewish approach, but this is consistent with the Jewish approach. So, huh? if you read his letters, he wrote that the Jews were special people. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like he did have a soft spot Jews. in his heart for, for the Jews. Did he study? It would be interesting to see if he studied any pieces of the Bible, the Torah. I don't know. If maybe he had a rabbi friend. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. I'm sure somebody knows. But that takes us to the end of today's lesson. And so what we did today was, as I'm just going to quickly recap from my own memory what we did today. So number one, um, we presented the, uh, the Jewish view on lending and borrowing. And the overarching Jewish perspective that it's not about rights, the right to start over, it's about obligations. If you're a lender, you lent money, okay, you did a good thing, but you have, you have an obligation to treat the other person like a human being, not like a shmata. You can't treat them, you can't rough them around. Yeah, you, can't, you can't roughhouse just because they owe you money. You can't roughhouse. That's on the one side. On the other side, you borrow money, you got to pay it back. If you, agree, if you took it as a gift, that's one thing. If you took it as a loan, you got to pay it back. There's no, there's no off the hook. Good. What happens if the guy can't pay it back? Okay, so then you pay back slowly. And if, you, you don't, if he doesn't have any money, and he's crushed, all right, there's Tadaka for that. There's a way to work this out where he can be okay and he can start paying back. There's a way that where everyone can, can make it work. Um, as far as why this system is preferred in the Jewish understanding, we explain. Because if this person, if the borrower is struggling to exist, to live, 
then that burden will be shared by the communal tzedakah fund that has a wider circle of input, as opposed to declaring bankruptcy, which basically means that the, the borrower gets a, gets a reset, but at the expense of the one person who lent. So instead of, the, it's, it's more a cost sharing than putting the cost on one, the burden on one person. Is this the law in Israel, do you know? I don't think so. I don't think Israel works by ancient, but although I will say, we would have to look that up to see maybe they adopted some. Typically, US, uh, um, is, Israeli law is more modeled after U.S. law and English law than biblical law and Talmudic law. But you do have some elements that, that kind of filter in. So the, the, my, my real answer is I don't know. We would have to look that up. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's more along the lines of, of U.S. law. Um, and so that's the rationale behind Jewish law. Um, so ask the question about you know how they can how, how are they going to how they can live how they support okay there's a tzedakah fund and eventually you pay back there's no statute of limitations on a loan as long as the person is ticking is breathing is is alive and and there's a debt outstanding they have to work toward repaying that debt and we had a beautiful uh, real life example of this uh, that we said at the end of the class with Mark Twain who took it upon himself even though U S law and culture does not require in any way of him to do that but he felt that he had to be a mensch. And do the right thing. And for him, to do the right thing meant to go on a tour at an advanced age to sit on a train. We decided he went by train probably? Yeah. When did airplanes begin? Not then, right? There you go. So in 1895, the only option was train. Schlepping. I am not liking the idea that the 60 is like, you know, ancient here. That the what, the what? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, yeah, for sure. No, then, no, then at 60 and then on a train. Can you imagine not sleeping? Not in, a, not in a bed? Not in a bed? And the trains then, I'm sure they didn't have advanced shocks. I'm sure they didn't have comfortable mattresses, right? A, a memory foam or whatever it is. I'm sure it was very, very I difficult. have two questions sure. and a comment. The comment is, I just read that 72 is the new 30. Oh, uh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. And then I have a question about Roma and Shah. Yes. And those two laws, I mean, those mm -hmm, two mm -hmm. thinking of laws is not for just this. It's for everything. Excellent. Right? When, when, uh, so Rama says, when it is beneficial to the person, you can adopt the law of the country. Yes. And the other one says, when it's not in opposition to the Jewish view, you can adopt the law yeah. of the country. And the problem here was with Rama that it was only beneficial to one of the parties, not the other one. No, we would say according to Rama that since it's since the intention of the law is a beneficial intent. Yeah. So even though Judaism would have a different way of, of making things right for, for both parties, but it's not fundamentally an immoral law, therefore Jewish law would respect the law of the land. And by the way, when, when you wrote the law, can, when you wrote that it, they can, it can be adopted, it's more than can. When we say the law of the land is the law, what, what that really means is that you can't wiggle out of that, you can't claim Jewish law to get out of, for example, paying taxes in the U.S. So, well, that's not in Jewish law. Jewish law doesn't talk about federal taxes. Jewish law says you got to follow the law of the land. And if the law of the land is is taxes, then that becomes binding in Jewish law. With the caveat, the Ramah, each has a caveat. The Ramah's caveat is that the intention is a beneficial intention, and that overall it's beneficial. The Shach's caveat is as long as it doesn't go f fundamentally against 
Jewish law itself. But what about if the beneficial is to only one party? But we so so there's a few a few things to that. Number one, it also benefits the creditor in the moment because instead of getting nothing, you're providing a way for the creditor to get at least something okay. in the moment. Number one, and number two, and this is probably the most salient point to me, the design of bankruptcy is for the good of society. It was not a malicious law that's put on the books. When we say that the law of the land wouldn't be the law, that would be if somebody, if there was like a, uh, a dictator that says, you know, uh, whatever, something like, you know, something negative or something really like prejudice. That would be something where Jewish law would say, just because the law of the land, do not do that. That's not, it's not Jewish. Um, but in this case, it's not malicious. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a bad law. Does Judaism have a different way of, doing, of looking at it? Yes, but it's not fundamentally a bad law. So therefore, the Ramah would say, if it's not a bad law, then it becomes binding in Jewish law. So you can't then renegotiate a negotiation. It's already done, and it's, and it's a just law. It's a law. But the Shach would say, one second, Judaism has a completely different way of looking at this specific case, even though the intention is good, but Judaism has a different way of looking at it, therefore it would not be binding in Jewish law, and therefore you could re, you know, bring that case back up in front of a rabbi. And, uh, and so since Rabbi Metzger was torn between the Ramah and the Shach, Ramah, Shach, who do I go with? Because they're, they're, they're pretty recent, and, and there's been no definitive, you know, like these guys would take earlier stuff and, and make a decision, but when they argue, now what do you do? So he said, all right, we got we got to figure out a compromise because that's the only way. So what's the Jewish on the case? I'm there is a member of the community who fell on hard times. He had a job. He lost his job. And the community has reached out to him and provided him money, mm-hmm. provided him housing. And he's been offered jobs, but he thinks those jobs are beneath his mm-hmm. dignity. And he still thinks the community should So this is an excellent question. Yeah. And, and, and it's so, we, we talked about this in other classes. I'm, you might remember this. These are, these are real, this, this question. This is a real case. No, but it's, it's such a real case that it's happened throughout the. Yeah, it's, well, it's happened throughout the. Oh, I wasn't speaking on a specific case. I'm just saying that this question has come up throughout the generations. And the way Jewish communities have dealt with this in the past is by provide, by making a provision in the communal fund that you can you receive tzedakah if there is good faith effort at getting a job, finding a job, taking a job, etc. If someone refuses a job, then they can be bounced out of that tzedakah mm-hmm. system. We should do a class on that, maybe a 101 about tzedakah because there's so many interesting nuances that would come up in that. Yeah, historically, community Jewish communities have written that into their bylaws to say that if you're now, if there's a good reason why you're turning it down, you can't. You're bad, whatever. Fine. Yeah. But if but if it seems like then then you're going to be put on a bit of a notice, and at some point you may just get bounced um, from that. Although even in that case, would people it privately step up to help if the kids don't have I'm sure the answer is yes, but there's always this balance to try to strike. All right, great to see. All right, we'll close it out. Thank you all for being here. Hope you enjoyed it. Great to see everybody. I'm loving you guys, the energy, the crew, the friendship. Right, this is great. All right, we'll see you guys soon. (laughs) Yeah, just these. Yeah, it's out of print. I don't have it. All right, I'm waving bye to the camera, even though there's no one joining, but we're recording it. So hey. No, not today, not live. All right.
was terrific, but I've another question. Yes. In Belgium. Yes. In Belgium, if you needed a um, transplant, yes. the law was that you got the transplant. They didn't have this whole rigmarole. All right. Of what? Of like a, of a system? What? Of, a, of, of what? Of like a list, you mean? Yeah. You mean like an organ transplant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here I am. Uh, I need a heart transplant, and there's a person who's dying. I get the heart. Get, right. right. Now, it didn't matter who you were. In the Jew 